as Chas gives that announcement, I was reminded of a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, which reads, Now he, that is God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and increase your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We, we really are a blessed people, and uh, many of us have... Uh, the resources and the opportunity to be able to bless our community uh, in this way. We have the seed uh, that He has given us to increase um, our harvest of righteousness. And I just really want to challenge um, you, 500 baskets, uh, church our size, really not a problem. And so I, I, I want to encourage you to be involved um, in that. You know, a favorite uh, story of almost every child growing up uh, in, in Sunday school, certainly one of my favorites, is found in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. Now, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the name Daniel? Uh, well, of course, it's Daniel and the lion's den. Most of us know that story. Daniel is thrown into a, uh, a den of hungry lions and God closed their mouths uh, in our imaginations, uh, we see him hanging out with the, with the lions, right? We, we see them petting them. Here, kitty, kitty. <laughs> or, or curling up with them for a restful night's sleep right before he walks out unscathed. It, it is a great story, but the question is, here's the question, why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? You see, the story of the den is not nearly as important as the events leading up to it. I mean, it really wasn't not that big of a deal for God to shut the mouths of a bunch of hungry lions. I don't think he broke out into a sweat at all. What was a big deal is what got Daniel there. What ultimately got him there was that he was a man of integrity. In short, he was above reproach. We find the story, as I mentioned, in Daniel chapter 6. Let me read you. You don't have to turn there. We're not going to spend our time there this morning. But let me read you the first three verses of that chapter where, we say, where it says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And, and over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, uh, that these satraps might be accountable to them and, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Let me give you a little bit of history. The Babylonian Empire had just fallen uh, to the next world empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus I was the, was the ruler of that empire, but he made Darius I ruler of this newly conquered Babylonian Empire, and for whatever reason, probably new word had gotten out about Daniel. He is he was uh, one of three appointed to be in the highest positions in the land, and we read that Daniel distinguished himself. The word literally means that he outshone them. He outshone them all. How did he do that? Well, verse three tells us that he possessed an extraordinary spirit. I like that. Don't forget those words. He possessed an extraordinary spirit. The idea is that of abundance. He was exceptional. He was the type of man who always did more than was required of him. He always went above and beyond the call of duty, and it therefore distinguished him. 
These exceptional qualities caught the notice of, of Darius I, who planned to elevate him above his peers, uh, to make him yet once again the prime minister of, of Babylon. Well, Daniel's behavior and pending promotion also caught the attention of his peers, the other two commissioners and those 120 satraps, which are administrators, and they did not like it one bit. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. And then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Because of their dislike for Daniel, their, actually it was their competitive jealousy, they went after him. Their entire lives were consumed with his downfall. We read here that they tried to find a ground of accusation against him. Literally, it says they tried to, quote, uh, find any business or affair which served as a cause for neglecting another. Anything that he was doing or not doing that, that, that interfered with his responsibility. It's very important. Anything that interfered with his job performance. Again, we find that Daniel was a man of highest integrity. They could find nothing, even though they looked for it, in two very specific ways. First, they looked for corruption. That is, they looked for him doing something that he was not supposed to be doing. Then they looked for some form of negligence. That is, um, not doing something that he was supposed to be doing. Corruption, negligence, negligence. And I want to remind you that Daniel was a politician. N -n Notice, uh, these were the people who worked side by side with Daniel. If anyone would have been able to detect his inadequacies, his failures, it would have been them. But his testimony before them was impeccable. It was above reproach. It led them to their conclusion that we just read in verse 5, and what a conclusion it was. They said, they, 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 we're not going to find any uh, basis for an accusation against Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. In other words, after examining Daniel's life for, for however long they did, they were only able to find one thing. This guy is really committed to his God. Now, that makes me wonder what, what people would say about me. Not if they just hung out with me, but if they spied on me for a period of weeks or months. What would they say about you? Just think about your life over this past week. They observed his life and knew he was committed to God. He wasn't going to change, which might just work in their favor. And this is where the story of the lion's den uh, comes in uh, to the story. Just let me abbreviate it. As they observed Daniel, they noticed that three times a day uh, he went home, opened his windows toward Jerusalem and prayed. And this was not just saying grace. This gave them an idea what I affectionately call the God for a month program. 
They went to Darius and said, hey, listen, we think you are so great. We think you are divine. We think you are a god. So we think you should sign a, a decree according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which means it was unalterable even by Darius himself once he signed it. We think you should sign this decree that says for the next 30 days, the only god people should pray to is why you. And if they pray to anyone else, well, then it's the lion's den for them. Darius was flattered, signed the unalterable decree, and the rest is the stuff of Sunday school flannel graph lesson. <laughs> Daniel was a man of integrity, above reproach, even amongst unbelievers who sought to find some ground of accusation against him. And I want to say to you this morning that those outside the faith will always seek to discredit both us and our Christ. And the truth is, at times, we have made it far too easy. Think of the numbers of people in Christian leadership who have fallen and who have taken the testimony of Christ and His church down with them. This is a serious call before us today as followers of Christ, especially, especially to the Daniels among us, those in leadership, and the call is to be above reproach. You see, this was the problem in Ephesus some of the leaders of that particular church who were likely elders were not above reproach. They did not have a good reputation both inside and, frankly, outside the faith. And as a result, Paul showed up. He disciplined them. He removed them. And he left Timothy there with some instructions about replacing them. And he says, here are the qualifications that you should look for in selecting your leaders, in selecting your Daniels, in selecting your elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and following say this, An overseer then must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He can't be addicted to wine. He can't be pugnacious. He must be gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He can't be a new convert so that he will not become conceited. That's an important one. And, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and take Christ with him into the snare of the devil. An overseer. Uh, an elder, a, a pastor, is to be above reproach. Then, then Paul uh, goes on to explain what he means by that, and he, and, and he finishes with a, with a call to be like Daniel, to have a good reputation with whoever it is that observe your, observes your life every day of the week. 
Now, we read this text over the last couple of weeks, and it has been an overwhelming, imposing list of, frankly, elder qualifications. But again, you do not have permission to check out because you are not an elder. You are not off the hook because you are not a leader in the church. As I suggested last week, every one of these qualities except one, that is the ability to teach, appears in the rest of the New Testament and is required of all believers. What do people see when they know that you're here on Sunday and with them the rest of the week? What do they see? What do they know about Jesus? Most of these are rather straightforward, and, and yet while we saw last week some involved controversy, I divided the, the list into the following categories for ease, ease of study. Uh, we see this title qualification is over writing qualification to be above reproach. The word literally speaks of, of one who cannot be laid hold of, who gives no basis for accusation. You don't do anything that gives cause for others to look at you and to question your integrity or your faithfulness or your morality or your holiness or your, or your faith. You are a Daniel. You possess an extraordinary spirit. Now listen to me very, very carefully. I want to say to you this morning that you do possess an extraordinary spirit. His name is the Holy Spirit. And you have the ability, no matter how overwhelming this text looks, to pursue these things. He tells us, what does it look like to be above reproach? He gives some personal qualifications, some family life qualifications, some qualifications with respect to the faith, and then he's going to round it all out by saying, I want you to be good out there too. We got started with personal qualifications last week. We got to just one. Uh, the, the elder is to be the husband of one wife. We saw that this did not require that he be married, but that if he was married, he was only married to one woman. Uh, certainly that means he was not a, that he's not a polygamist, uh, but it also means that uh, he, he, if he has had more than one wife, if he's divorced and, and remarried, he's had biblical qualifications for doing so. And I shared two of those with you last week, and I just want you to know that even that is up to much debate. We summed the whole thing up by, by saying he was... He was, that an elder must be committed to his wife. He must be committed to his marriage vows such that he is singly committed to her and remains faithful. The call to us in this sex-filled environment, men, is to be faithful. I suppose the husband of one wife could have come under family qualifications. I put it under personal. This brings us to the Second personal qualification of the elder to be above, above reproach is to be temperate. And when you hear that word temperate, I've suggested this before, you may think of the temperance society from our American history. That was a movement of local chapters across the U.S. And these chapters would be made up of people who took an oath of abstinence from alcoholic beverages. In fact, many Christian organizations and, and churches today still require that oath of abstinence, which I want to suggest is probably a good thing given the prevalence of alcohol abuse in our society today. It's probably a good thing if you want to take a personal vow of abstinence. Now, Paul addresses addiction to wine in verse 3, so, so most surmise that that's not the main idea here. To be temperate means uh, to exercise moderation, 
a sober judgment and self-restraint. It is to be clear-headed. Now, if you stop and think about that, if you're drunk or high, you lack sober judgment and self-restraint. You're not very clear-headed. But here it likely speaks of being balanced, not giving, to, not giving to excess in every, uh, in, in any area of life. You are temperate. That is, you appropriately are committed in balanced ways to the, to the various priorities of your life. Temperate. Third, the elder is to be prudent. It speaks of being self-controlled, of being serious, of being sensible. Listen, I'm going I'm to tell you, we need more of this in our society today, in our society that seeks only fun and, and humor, typically through sarcasm, and, and pursues flippancy in every area of life. We need to be more serious and seek more of the gravity and reality of life. My brothers and sisters, life is serious, and it requires that we be sensible and self-controlled. Fourth is to be respectable. This speaks of a sense of, of modesty and decency. It speaks of actually being dignified. We, we kind of poo-poo that today. Oh, come on. It's the same word that Paul used in chapter 2 when he said that a woman should dress modestly. That is, she should dress respectably, appropriately. Again, I, I know in, this, in our society today, you know, jackass number one, two, five, ten, whatever many they've had. That we're being encouraged to be macho. We should seek to be outrageous, out of control, out of order, indecent, immodest. We should pursue, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should pursue respectability. Which leads to the next one, the elders, to be hospitable. Where literally speaks of showing care, concern, even love for strangers. The idea is, is having strangers in your home for the purpose of feeding, clothing them, kind of like what Chas talked to us about. And I find it very, very interesting here. We, we, we think of, we would look at something like this, and we think, well, that should, be a, that should be a woman's job, or that should be at best a deacon's job, right? We think of deacons as the servants and elders as the leaders. And yet this qualification, when we go to the, the, the list of deacons and qualifications over the next couple of weeks, we're going to find that they are very similar to the list of elders, but here's one thing that is not on their list. The deacons are not told to be hospitable. Elders are, because elders are expected to lead in hospitality. And now, now, certainly this was necessary for traveling Christians and preachers at this time. Hotels, the very few that there were, were far from safe. And so elders were expected to care for traveling believers this later gave rise to, to things that we call hostels. Where do you think that came from? Or hospitals. You see, we're going to find that the elder is to be, flee this love of money. It's going to flee this pursuit of possessions. The Christian leader actually holds those things rather loosely and shares them openly. He gladly cares for people and demonstrates that care with a very open home and, frankly, an open wallet. Elders should lead in hospitality. I'll say the next one, able to teach for qualifications with respect to the faith as it appears in the text. Next on the list of personal qualifications, he should, be, should not be addicted to wine. I already, already t- 
touched on that. Verse 2, notice, is filled with positive qualities that the elders possess. Verse 3 uh, is full of qualities that he is to shun, at least the first one and the, and the last one. With, in the very middle, he's to be a man of gentleness and peace. Not addicted to wine. Very interesting wording. It doesn't actually, it doesn't actually speak of total abstinence. But again, I want to suggest there's nothing wrong with that, especially given uh, the, the society in which we live, alcohol uh, abuse. Um, today, there are some people, and we all know that we have uh, Freedom Farm that is vitally and intricately connected to our church, getting ready to start Carrie's home. And, and we all know uh, people who have addictive lifestyles who should pursue total abstinence. You should not pursue pursue it because you have the freedom to do so, because all too often one leads to two, two leads to three, and, and we know where that leads us. The point here is to avoid addiction to wine, and I would add any alcoholic beverages, don't just think wine, any other substances. Elders cannot be addicted to drugs or alcohol. We can't be drunks or addicts. We must pursue moderation in all things. Here's the point. We don't want to be filled with wine. We don't want to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. We want His extraordinary Spirit to fill us. Next, the elders not to be pugnacious, to be pugnacious. I've said it's to be combative or to be a brawler, to be violent, especially um, violently defensive. We all know people like that. Don't cross them. Man, you'll get paid back double. That is not Christian. He'll lash out when attacked. And this could be connected. This could be why he has it next to not addicted to wine. It could be connected to drunkenness. We all know people when they come under influence are, are combative or violent. Elders, and I'm going to say godly men, we are not to be known as violent, combative people. Rather, we are to be gentle. The word speaks of being sweetly reasonable. That's the next qualification. We are seeking a world that promotes pride and, and ambition and arrogance. That's all we're told to do. You be proud of yourself. We, rather, are to seek meekness, gentleness, and humility. Meekness, gentleness, and humility. The word actually speaks of one who forgoes his personal rights. Christians, we are known for fighting for rights. I, I, I'm not sure about that. Christians to be gentle and meek. It's interesting to note the word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul urges the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You want to be like Jesus? You be meek. You be gentle. Next, we read he is to be peaceable. Again, the opposite of pugnacious. The elder is to be known as a man of peace. He's not contentious. He's not quarrelsome. By the way, which is what these false teachers were, they were looking to pick fights everywhere. Elders, we don't pick fights. We're not lo looking out. Again, the idea is we're not looking out for our own rights. Last on the list of personal qualifications, elders must be free from the love of money. Please notice, it, he said, free from the love of money, not free from money. The early church kind of messed that up, and they saw poverty as something to be spiritually pursued, 
But, but, but that's not the point. Money itself is amoral. It is neither good nor bad. We need money for buying and selling, trading, doing business, blah, blah, blah. Nothing wrong with money. It is the love of money that is the problem. And in chapter 6, talking about these false teachers, Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Huge problem in Ephesus. These false teachers saw ministry as a means of financial gain, which is no doubt why the, the, uh, this quality made this particular list. Now, I'm going to resist the urge to name names uh, of those in our country today who appear to only be in it for the money. I will save that for chapter 6, at which time I likely will name names. brings us to the family qualifications. The first or second, depending on whether or not you count the husband of one wife as the first. Second one is found in verse 4. The elder must be one who manages his own household well. To manage speaks of order, proper order. Again, there's this idea of balance. We don't in our homes want chaos on the one hand or dictatorial rule on the other, right? Gordon Fee rightly notes that there is a fine line between demanding obedience and gaining it. The, the, the elder, and I would say the godly husband and father, knows how to rightly manage, properly manage his home. You see, the word manage there speaks of going before, this idea of leading and shepherding and, and caring and providing and protecting there is order as a result of a proper attention and, and, and care, which requires, by the way, men, being present, not just being present, but being engaged. Verse 5, Paul goes on, speaking of the elder, says, if any man doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he know how to take care of the church of God? And in verse 15, he calls the church the household of God. So a man has to be able to demonstrate an ability to be able to take care of his own house if he is to be expected to take care of the house of God that we call the church. The idea is proper order, balanced care, oversight. Very interesting to note that the word how will he take care of? The word to take care of is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it's found in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. There, the Good Samaritan took care of, that's the word, took care of the injured man. You see, the word carries with it the idea of taking care of sick people. It is a sensitive caring for wounded people. It is not, elders, a dictatorial use of power. I've said it this way before. I haven't said it in a long time. The church is to be a hospital for sick people. Next family qualification, elders must keep their children, our children, under control with all dignity. With all dignity. That's kind of an interesting word. Whose dignity are we talking about? Well, of course, we expect the children to be dignified. Well, it could be talking about that, but most agree it's talking about the dad. Point is, the dad, his control of his children must be respectable. It must be dignified. It must not be out of hand. It must be appropriate. You, you are not managing your house well if your children are scared of you. This keeping children under control speaks of having children who are obedient, not out of control, not rebellious, not incorrigible, not insubordinate. Now, we're going to look at this when we get to Titus, eventually. 
But, but, but there Paul, in giving the qualifications of elders, speaking of taking care of children, he, he, he has an interesting phrase. He says, a phrase is, they are children who believe. That's a challenge. What happens if you have a child who is not a believer, right? And how can I make my children believe? See, actually the phrase, and it's actually translated, children who believe in my translation, I think it's a bad translation. It should be translated, children who are faithful. The idea is faithful to obedience. You can't make your children believe. All you can do is present the gospel. It is up to them to believe or not. But we must manage our households with proper, balanced control. Your house is out of control. Your children are out of control. You've got something to work on. Brings us quickly to the last group of characteristics, those with respect to the Christian faith. First, the elder is not to be a new convert. I'm going to just talk about this one, not to be a new convert. The word literally speaks of newly planted. It speaks of someone who has just come to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you don't appoint a new Christian to a position of spiritual leadership in the church. And you say, well, of course, I mean, that, that, that kind of makes sense. But it has always been a problem and a temptation in the church to do so. Some community leader, business leader, wealthy person, or or celebrity comes to faith, let's let them be our spokesperson. Let's let them be our leader, not so fast. Th those are not qualities in this list. It is always a bit bothersome, maybe humorous, to me the way that we as Christians look to celebrities to make a profession of faith, and then when they do, man, we are quick to put them in the spotlight Right? Let them be our spokesman as if somehow, if a celebrity comes to faith in Christ, it validates our own faith. We should not do that. The latest, by the way, don't know if you know this, is Shia LaBeouf, who plays a Christian in a new war movie and makes some statements in an interview that could lead you to believe that maybe, just maybe, he's come to faith in Christ. But before we make him our spokesperson, let's give him some time, shall we? I mean, the rest of the interview indicates a less than appropriate understanding of the gospel. It's all over Facebook, Shia LaBeouf, he's one of us. I hope he is. He's not going to be speaking here next Sunday. <laughs> but, but, by the way, though, this that does have nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with Christian maturity. Timothy, as we've discovered, was likely in his early to mid-30s, and at this point he was serving as Paul's apostolic delegate to the church in Ephesus. His youth did not prevent him from the task of appointing elders. And I also want to say this, everyone is an el a new convert at some point. There's nothing wrong with being a new believer. But as it relates to the elder, we look for those who are not new in the faith, rather those who have grown in their faith. Let me talk about that for just a second. Some of you men have been Christians for a very long time. And you don't meet this qualification because you have remained immature. I know you're busy. I know you have the very important task of providing for your family. I know that there, there's much on your plate that garners your attention. But you also have the responsibility to lead your family spiritually and to do so humbly, gently, graciously, spiritually by the principles of the Word of God. So grow we must. You cannot remain a new convert forever. Always bothers me when a couple comes to me and by his own admission, well, she's more spiritual than I. Why? 
a little mad about that one. <laughs> now, if we appoint a new convert in the position of elder, we run the significant risk of him becoming conceited. The word is arrogant, puffed up, filled with smoke. And then he could fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That sounds a bit onerous. What does it mean? Does it mean that he will be condemned by the devil, that the devil is the one doing the condemning? Don't think so. It's more likely he will receive the same condemnation that the devil received. That is, his, the, the devil received condemnation for his pride in seeking to exalt himself above that which was due him, and he was judged, not that this new convert will be eternally condemned or lose his salvation, but he will be judged for his lack of humility and his arrogant conceit. Don't put new believers in places where that can happen to them. That's what he's saying. Which leads to the last qualification as it relates to the faith. The elder must be able to teach. The word there actually speaks of skill in teaching. That is not to negate the gift of teaching, but is a gift that has been received and honed. It's been worked on. All right? Now, in, in this context, remember there were, there were elders in Ephesus who were false teacher, so, teachers. So Paul rightly lists this quality, elders must be skilled in right teaching. There are lots of ways that elders can teach outside of what I do on Sunday mornings or leading a life group or, or teaching a Sunday school class. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll find that Paul seems to speak of elders who rule and others who teach and preach. He makes a distinction there. Regardless, regardless, it is an elder's responsibility to be able to handle the Word of God well. I've got to know the Bible. Titus shed some light on this when he says, holding fast the faithful word, this is the elders, holds fast the faithful, faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. An elder has to know the Word of God so that he can use it to encourage, maybe one-on-one, maybe in a group setting, but also refute the false teachers. Brings us full circle, last on the list, back to the title qualification, the overriding qualification. He has to have a good reputation with those outside the church. This is so important. I have hammered this. But hypocritical church leaders, pastors, elders, those who fall in these very significant areas do and have done much damage to the cause of Christ. I want you to understand that non-believers keep an eye on Christians all the time, but none so closely as to Christian leaders. Let a Christian leader fall and it will make national news. You can't be a hypocrite. You can't be spiritual here, completely different at work, completely different at home. He must have a good reputation. This does not mean, by the way, good reputation does not mean the world likes you. They didn't like Daniel. But like Daniel, there is no ground of charge or accusation against you. You have a good reputation. You are a man of consistent, abiding integrity. If not, Paul gives a very sober warning. He will fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Reproach here speaks of extreme disgrace. And we have all known Christian leaders who have fallen into such disgrace and taken the name of Christ with them. 
snare of the devil here is likely speaking of the devil as the subject. He is the one setting the snare. He is the one trapping the one who lacks integrity and trap you, he will, to bring reproach on the name of Christ. We often quote 1 Peter chapter 5, which speaks of the devil as a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour, but in the context, he's, pro- he's prowling around looking for an elder who lacks, who, who lacks integrity to snare. Elders are to be men who are above reproach in the church, and they are proven to be above reproach by these qualities. And they are men of good reputation outside the church because the very testimony of Christ and the very testimony of His bride are at stake. And I want to remind you of some very good news. We possess an extraordinary spirit. We call Him the Holy Spirit by which we can pursue this daunting list of responsibilities. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this, this completes for us three weeks of taking a very close look at elders. And in my prayer for us as a church is that we would carefully select our elders and that we would obey them, Hebrews 13 says, and that we would pray for them recognizing the very devil himself is out to snare them and in many cases does. And so would you be with our elders, the ones in this room right now, would you help them to walk faithfully in these qualifications? Give us an extraordinary spirit, the Holy Spirit. Fill us with him so that we can take care of the church of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.